Good morning, everyone. I just want to add my thank you to what Jesus said to all of you who helped out in Adventure Week. It, is, it was a wonderful time. I don't know if you could see it in the video, but everyone was having a good time, not just the kids, but even the volunteers. My favorite photo, I don't know if you caught it. David, are you in here? David Wong, are you in here this morning? Yeah, my favorite photo. You know what I'm talking about. There's David Wong, like all six foot five or whatever, his hands like that. Did you see the little kid? Kid was like on their chop. <laughs> so, oh, almost broke my cable here. So it was just a wonderful time. And especially for those of you who, I know how, for me, Adventure Week is one of those weeks where I don't want it to end, but I'm also very glad that it does, right? So exciting, but it's so exhausting. And I know for you guys, for many of you, we're working full-time jobs, and then you'd rush over here at 5.30, serve up until 8, 8.30, 9 o'clock, and then go home, and you did that every night this week. That is not lost on the kids. That is not lost on us. Thank you so much for doing that. And, I, and I'm pretty sure you had as much fun serving that way as the kids did. So I'm very grateful for that. I was telling my wife, this, this was our 20th, for me, 20th Adventure Week that I've been a part of for 20 years. And I just love it because Adventure Week comprises some of my favorite things. Number one, the gospel. It's all about the gospel. It, uh, kids and the church. So I, I just have a great time with it. And it's actually kind of fitting that today we're talking about children or parenting on the heels of Adventure Week. One of the reasons I kind of love Adventure Week, um, as a side note, is Adventure Week really helps my pastoring of this church. I learn more about you from talking to your kids for one week than I do knowing you for like years. One of the nights, one of the teachers, I think she was talking about how we need to love God above all other things in our lives, and when we put things in our hearts and we love things in our hearts more than we love the Lord, that's idolatry. And man, the kids were off to the races because one kid was like, my mom loves shopping more than she loves God, yeah. And the other kid went, my mom loves coffee more than anyone in our family. Some other kid's like, yeah, my dad's, he's an idolater too. It was like, oh, this is like pastoral gold right here. So... Um, some of you will be getting calls from the elders this week. So, I'm, I'm just kidding, just kidding. Um, well, one, uh, Psalm 127.3, it's a, a very well-known verse, says children are a gift from the Lord. And in this week is seven, week seven of our uh, series on marriage called The Grace of Life, Planting Seeds of a Marriage That Matters. And we're talking about children. More to the point, we're actually talking about parenting. Not about you, um, but for me, being a dad, getting a chance to be a parent, has probably been one of the most clear, tangible evidences of God's love and goodness towards me, right? If you are a parent, you know, if they say it's, it's a cliche, but it's true, it's the toughest job you'll love. Being around my children, uh, being very a part of their lives, and then as they got older, being around many of your children has just been one of my great delights in life. But, but loving kids and, and actually interacting with them, it wasn't always that way. You see, growing up, I didn't have younger siblings around my life. I didn't have family around me that had younger siblings. I just didn't have that experience working with children or being around children in that way. Uh, when I was 18, I got a chance to be a part of a church plant, and I became the youth pastor at that age about that time. So I got a lot of experience working with teenagers, but not so much with kids, little children. It wasn't until I was in my 20s when my own friends started to have their own children that, that I actually got to experience the joys and the challenges of having children. Now, I'll never forget, it was like a game. They were like, hey, Rick, do you want to hold the baby? Do you want to hold the baby? And I'm like, no, I don't really want to hold the baby. And then they'd put it in my arms, and there that baby would be. And then they'd say things like, but make sure you hold the head. 
because apparently the heads fall off if you don't hold them, right? So, so I'm holding this thing, and it, it smells like talcum powder and spit up and a side of spoiled milk. And I was like, I, I don't get the, the, the attraction to children. And, and, and everyone always tell me their children are beautiful, and I, I've seen some ugly babies, right? I mean, can we, I, I saw this one guy. He looked like Sloth from the Goonies. Remember him? Or it was like a grumpy, tiny Winston Churchill. I'm like, these babies, I, I just don't get it. Needless to say, uh, I, I didn't have skill with babies and, and, ch- and kids, and um, so I, I joined my church's youth ch- children's ministry to get a little bit more exposure to children, because I figured this is something I do want to have in my life. I don't have any background in it, and this is a safe environment, because I get them for 90 minutes, and then I'm done with them. And I'll never forget, week one, week one, you know how kids always come up to you, and they just they, they, they ask you to hold things, and you instinctively reach out for it. Week one, a kid comes up to me and gives me his booger. I was like, great. So I wipe it on the back of his shirt when he wasn't looking. I sit down for story time. The kid sits in my lap. And guys, I'm not kidding. He farts. I was like, oh, man. I'm not. Actually, that was kind of cool, these kids. But the point is, I didn't know anything about children. And it really didn't make a difference because I didn't have any of my own until I did, right? And then if you know me, my personality styles, I dive all into things. I was reading every book I could get on parenting, on childhood development, whether it was from a Christian or non-Christian source. I was just asking all the fathers I knew for advice. I was just a sponge bringing it all in because I wanted to do this right. And I had no background. My father, those of you know my story, I didn't have a father that raised me well, so I had no clue the responsibilities that, that, or how to carry out the responsibilities of fatherhood of being a parent. Lori tried to make it easier for me. She just said, look, let's make this easy. You just keep them alive. I'll do everything else, okay? Can we just do that? And she was joking, of course, but the reality was she knew I felt the weight of the fact that as a father, as the dad, it's my job to raise them. It's my job to train them. It's my job to to shape them and, and provide for them and one day to send them out. And so it concerned me, and I'll never forget When we first had Asher, I was in the Midwest, and I sat down with a seasoned pastor and sharing with him my anxieties about being a dad. I think his name was Bob. It was Bob, and and Bob was so helpful because he could see the anxiety I felt. And as a young parent or as parents, we often feel guilty, like we're never good enough. And, And Bob said, Rick, here, let me just give you some encouragement. Love God with everything you have. And I don't just, he says, I, I know pastors are supposed to say that, but he said, really, love him. Love him to where it overflows from your life, and then just love your kids. You'll be okay. They'll be okay. Because I was talking about when do I have family worship? How do I do Bible reading? How do I do all these things? And, this, and, 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 and he could see, hey, let me, let me break it down. Love God with all your whole heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love them, and it'll be Okay. If you're a parent, you know it's way more than that, but that was so helpful because at the end of the day, the gospel worshiping of, and worship of God has as much to do with parenting as anything else. In fact, the thesis that I have this morning, the, the driving thesis that I have is because there's so many things you could say on parenting, but, but, but what do you say in just 40 minutes that can be helpful, right? And so here's my thesis. That unless as parents we, we have a, a biblical understanding that, that we have a God-glorifying, Christ-conforming, gospel-centric understanding of parenting, unless we have those three, let me say them again, a God-glorifying, Christ-conforming, gospel-centric view of parenting, 
We are not going to understand the just fundamental issues of what parenting is about. Now, that doesn't mean that there aren't other things because there's a lot of other things that you have to talk about as being a parent, right? And for example, I have this little diagram here. There's, there's all kinds of things we didn't talk about. I didn't even talk about education, sleep habits, socialization, the, the emotional development, even hygiene, eating habits, all those things. But, but you can't talk about all of that in a sermon. And as kids get older, there's even more issues, right? Uh, teaching them about worldview development, work ethic, purity, puberty, dating, and on and on and on it goes. Now, we could talk about all those things, but I don't think that would serve you really well because there are better people to hear that from than me. But I think those three things, a God-glorifying, Christ-conforming, gospel-centric foundation, acts as kind of like a, a, feel, a fenced-in field of love that actually give context to all the other stuff that without which those three foundational principles Everything else that we're trying to instill in our kids lack the kind of grounding or coherence necessary to make that matter. For example, how do you ground teaching purity and, and sexual purity and all those things when, when God and Christ and the gospel have nothing to do with their lives or, or just kind of faded or somewhere in the background? How do you instill in your child that they have an obligation to be, at the very least, a contributing citizen to society, right? So, so, those three things is what I want to talk about, a God-glorifying, Christ-conforming, gospel-centric foundation to our parenting, by which all these other things, all these other good things, you can build upon those things. So the three things I want to talk about this morning in parenting is that biblical parenting requires you to have the right perspective, the right goal, and the right gospel. So there's a lot to cover, so let me jump into it right away. Biblical parenting is about the right perspective. I quoted Psalm 127.3 earlier. Uh, it's, a, it's a great verse. It says, the children are a gift from the Lord, a reward, uh, the fruit of the womb. Now, depending on the translation you have, it might say gift. Some translations, particularly maybe older ones, use the word that kids or children are an inheritance from the Lord. Now, Solomon wrote Psalm 127. And I think it's very intentional. By the way, the, the original, the actual word is inheritance. It can be translated gift as well. Uh, but the word is inheritance. And I think Solomon used that word for a specific reason. You see, if you were a, a, a Jew or an Israelite or a Hebrew reading this for the first time, the original audience, by use of the word inheritance, it certainly would have triggered a lot more than the concept of just being a parent in this context. Because if you're familiar with the Old Testament... The word inheritance was a very common thing. As a matter of fact, it was the hope of the people of God to inherit the land of Canaan. Their inheritance would be in the land where God would be so that they could be in his presence and they could be with each other. So inheritance meant so much more than maybe what it might mean today, particularly because as God gave his people the inheritance of the land, he also gave them stipulations about how to use and steward or manage the land. As a matter of fact, if they didn't manage the land the way he gave it to them, they would go into exile. And one of the reasons they actually were eventually exiled was because they didn't take care of the land, their inheritance, the way God intended. Now, if you look at other passages of Scripture, 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 6, Colossians 1.16, we hear, we learn from these that all things in life exist for God. They, re, they exist for Him and were made by Him and for Him. So all things exist for God. Not just land, but by extension, even children. 
So it's very appropriate when the psalmist says that children are an inheritance from the Lord, it's communicating a couple things. That it's a gift, yes, a gift, but it's a gift that requires a stewardship. That there's something expected of us as the ones who receive the gift. It's like many gifts that we give to our own children. We give them these gifts because we want to bless them and we want to enjoy and that we want them to enjoy them, but we also want them to care for them and, and manage them well. When our children got into their teen years, Lori and I got them uh, iPhones, smartphones. And we had them enter into what we called the Roadheaver Digital Covenant. And it was this document that I had made up. I even had a preamble. I had general rules and specific rules. And the whole concept was, we are giving you a gift, but this gift is not to be handled however you want, but to be handled and used in a way that mom and dad want you to use it. To be clear, we want it to be a blessing, but it's a blessing that comes with responsibility. And so basically, I would say to the kids, look, it, it, it is your phone, but it's really dad's phone, right? And when dad wants to look at his phone, dad's going to look at his phone, right? It was this idea that, yeah, it is yours, but it's really still mine. In the same way, as Psalm 127 says, that children are a gift. Children are an inheritance from him. He's saying, your children are yours, but they're really actually mine, Yes, I want you to enjoy them, but I also want you to raise them, not however you like, but however I intend for these children to be raised. So here's the perspective in, in, in case it's not clear. Your children are not yours. They ultimately are not yours. They belong to the Lord. And, and, and I don't mean that because they're not yours, that, that absolves you of any responsibility, right? Some people can say it in that kind of, kind of sappy, saccharine, sentimental, like, oh, well, you know, they belong to the Lord, so what am I going to do? That, that's not what I mean, right? That, that can often be an excuse for lazy parenting. I, well, they belong to the Lord, so they're going to do what they're going to do. No. They belong to the Lord, and they were given to you, so that means you are the steward. You are the manager, you are the quarterback on behalf of the coach. You don't get to raise them the way you want. You don't get to run the plays you want. You run them the way the person you submit to desires for you to run them. Let's see this in Scripture. Uh, if you have a Bible, open up to Genesis chapter 1. If you come to Christ community regularly, you know, I mean, we go to Genesis, these first three chapters, so much because they're so foundational to understanding life. Genesis chapter 1. Look at verse 26. We're just going to look at the first part of verse 26. Then the Lord says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. Okay, so I'm going to, that's it. Whose image and whose likeness was humanity made in? God's, right? Now, I want to take you to the New Testament, two chapters or two verses in the book of Ephesians to kind of tease something out. In Ephesians 3, verses 14 and 15, it says this, For this reason, Paul writes, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. And then in the next chapter, Ephesians 4, 6, Paul writes, One God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Now, what am I putting, connecting here? These two passages in Ephesians, it's not Paul establishing some kind of like the fatherhood of God and the brotherhood of mankind of thoughts. 
What he's establishing is the supremacy of God himself, using the metaphor as a father, a position everyone wouldn't understand, is a position of respect, due reverence, authority, and submission to. And the idea of a father is that he is the father over all families, over all reality. And as human beings made in his image and likeness and the metaphor of a father, he's connecting this kind of uh, the sovereignty of God in a familial context, establishing himself as ultimately the father over all. What this means for us as parents is that the right perspective you are to have is that you are God's vice-regent. You're God's proxy, so to speak. You're God's steward. You're God's agent in their lives. You are not the end-all, be-all. Parenting isn't about our convenience. You know that. It's not about our comfort. It's certainly not about our pride or esteem, but for God's desire to have this world populated by image-bearers that extend and display His glory. And you and I, as mom and dad, get a chance to be a part of that. In other words, friends, you direct your children on God's behalf for their good. Notice that? You direct your children on God's behalf for their good. Me, as the parent, I'm just third in line. First, it's about God's direction, what He desires, and what is good ultimately for that child in alignment with what God wants. And then it comes down to me and my responsibility as a parent. But it's what God desires first, what is ultimately good for that child in alignment with those desires, and then how I prefer to raise that child. Here's the perspective. Straight, said straight up plainly, you parent on behalf of another father. Whether you are a mom or dad, you parent on behalf of another father. You're not raising a second version of you. You are raising a first version of another unique image bearer of God. And friends, this is a totally different perspective than the world, right? This is a completely different perspective of the world, which believes one of two things. Either, on the one hand that your children are yours to raise and do with as you please, or equally bad, that your children are their owns, right? And, 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 And the parent's job is to get out of the way so that the child develops to be whatever he or she wants to be. Both of those perspectives are bad. Because on the one hand, either they will be crushed under the weight of your desires of what you want them to be, or they will be shackled and enslaved to their own desires of what they want to be, rather than set free to be what God made them to be. You see, in either of those perspectives of the world, if I think children are my my kids, I get to do with as, as I please, then I will lay upon them a lot of desires, oftentimes idolatrous desires, and my kids cannot bear that weight. Or on the other hand, if I feel like kids are their own to do whatever they want, I'm just setting them up to put their own shackles on themselves. But when I parent on behalf of God, I'm actually setting them free because I'm helping them become the very thing God intended for them to be, free from my idolatries and free from their own idolatries. So the question is, how do we do that? How do we help them to realize their foundational purpose? And that's the second principle of biblical parenting. 
If the first is have the right perspective, and that is I parent on behalf of another father, the second principle would be that I have to have the right goal. And this is really important because every parent is going to have a goal for their child. Right? Whether it's consciously or unconsciously, we set up goals for our kids, and so it's really important to make sure we understand what is that goal. And we can have all kinds of different goals, right? Education, success, sports, marriage, happiness, self-esteem, and on and on it goes. But here's the question. Moms, dads, if we are parenting on behalf of another father then it stands to reason we really should know what that father's goals are for this child, shouldn't we? My, my wife, who works at our preschool, she's always telling me that one of the things that they are trained to do is to talk to the parents and ask the parents, what are your goals for your child uh, so that we can reinforce them while they're here under our care, right? And, and it's, it's surprising how, t- how as often as not, parents will have certain specific behavior goals or whatever, and then the, the, the staff will carry those out. But it makes a lot of sense that if we're going to be the caretaker of your child, we need to make sure what your goals are so we can reinforce them while they're with us. Now, I want to be really clear. I don't want to be misheard here. Um, The Bible doesn't say anything against goals like marriage or success or education, those kinds of things, right? I don't want to be misunderstood. As a matter of fact, the Bible actually talks about how marriage is a blessing. Success is is a reward from the Lord. All those things are good. The point I'm making is that if we are pursuing those goals to the neglect of the actual goal that our Heavenly Father has for His children, then we're missing out on one of the most important duties of what it means to be a parent. Does that make sense? So don't misconstrue me by saying, hey, these are all good goals. Most of them are good goals to pursue. But if you're not pursuing the goal that our Father wants for your kids, then you're missing out on one of the most important tasks of a father. So let's go to Scripture to find that out. So let's listen to what God's goals are. If you have a Bible, uh, go to the book of Deuteronomy chapter 4. If you don't have a Bible and you need to use a pew Bible, that's going to be on page 139. So so while you're flipping to Deuteronomy, we're going to read a little bit in Deuteronomy 4 and then jump to Deuteronomy 6. Now, Deuteronomy is a very important uh, book of the Bible. It means, Deuteronomy means second law. Uh, The reason it's called second law is this is the time period in the children of Israel. They're about to take possession of their inheritance. They're about to get the promised land. And and so God is saying, before you go in, let's reiterate what the covenant is. Let's go over this one more time because I'm very serious about this. So let's make sure you understand it. Because remember, 40 years earlier, uh, they did not trust the Lord. They did not believe in the Lord and said, the Lord said, okay, well, it looks like you have to wander around for four generations or, you know, Four decades until you're ready to go in, so this is what's going on. So it's an important book. This is what the Lord says. And it is mostly comprised of sermons from Moses. Deuteronomy chapter 4, look at verse 9. Only take care, he writes, and keep your soul diligently, lest you forget the things that your eyes have seen, and lest they depart from your heart all the days of your life. Make them known to your children and your children's children. Okay, Really important. So the Lord's saying, remember. In in some sense, what he's saying is, love the Lord your God with all your heart. Remember these things. Keep them before you. And by the way, teach them to your children. Jump over to chapter 6. 
chapter 6, starting in verse 4. This is a a profound chapter in the book of Deuteronomy. If any of you have any Jewish friends, if they're practicing Jews, they know how important Deuteronomy 6 is. This is the great Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, body, and strength. It comes from here. This is what he says. Verse 4, here it is. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart, verse 7, and you will teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. See the connection. Love God with everything you've got. And then teach this, that love to your children. It's not just a, a not just content dump, but to explain to them, to teach them the love of God. Go down to verse 20. Oh, verse 20. So Moses says this, when your son asks you in time to come. So here we go, guys. Some of you will be lucky that your son or daughter may ask you in time to come when they're three or four years old. Father, mom, mom, dad, what's all this mean? And you'll get to share the gospel with them. Maybe they'll respond. For some of you, that time may not come until they're 10. For some of you, it may not be here until they're 15. For some of you, it may not even be until they're 20, maybe 25. The, The point is, as you are loving the Lord your God and you are talking about it and showing it to them, at some point, they're gonna wanna know for themselves, what is this? What does this mean, right? Verse 20, when your son asks you in time to come, What is the meaning of the testimonies and the statutes and the rules that the Lord our God has commanded you? Look at verse 21. You shall say to your son, we were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt, and the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. And the Lord showed signs and wonders great and grievous against Egypt and against Pharaoh and all his household before our eyes. And he brought us out from there that he might bring us in and give us the land that he swore to give to our fathers. And the Lord commanded us to do all these statutes to fear the Lord our God for our good always that he might preserve us alive as we are this day. And it will be righteousness for us if we are careful to do all the commandments before the Lord our God as he commanded us. What am I saying here? I'm not saying when your kids ask you, what's up with all this Christian stuff, you tell them the Exodus story. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is when you constantly are loving the Lord and you're talking of his goodness and you're singing of his praise, then showing the gospel to your children, and one day they might be ready to say, what does this mean? You show them the beauty and the glory and the power of a God who loved them and delivered them from all the powers of darkness and sets them free and has given us his good word that we might flourish and live and be in his presence forever and ever. You share the gospel with them. That's what he's talking about here. You tell the story of our exodus from bondage into freedom. That's the goal. You're always talking to your kids in every opportunity so that they know they are not alone in this world and that there is a power greater than everything they face and that power has a name and his name is Jesus Christ and he loves them and he works on their behalf leading us into the second greater exodus. That we see that in the Old Testament. Let's go to the New Testament, Ephesians chapter 6. I mean, there's so many more we could do this with, but we don't have time. But I just want to show you some highlights. Go to Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4. 
Now, you know, we've been talking about the book of Ephesians, and the book of Ephesians has a great structure. The first three chapters is all doctrine. The last three chapters is, is how do we live in light of that doctrine. And a key word is how do we walk worthy of the gospel. And so Paul is talking here about being parents. So this may be a very familiar text to you parents, especially verse 1, children obey your parents, right? But we're going to focus on verse 4. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. And we know, and this includes mothers too, right? There are many ways we can provoke our children to anger, inconsistency, apathy, abuse, uh, all kinds of ways we can provoke them to anger. I don't want to focus on that because this is not necessarily a parenting series, but I do want to focus on how do we, the positive, the second half of that verse. But, so don't do this, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So we have discipline and instruction, and, and basically... The discipline can refer to the external structure of their lives. That's what padilla can mean. This is the way you structure your very life. So, for example, hey, kids, Sunday morning, that's the Lord's Day. We're going to be at church. Yes, a great day. The waves are good, but we're still going to be with the Lord's people because that's the way we structure our lives. God calls us to be there. We're going to be there. And if we're not with our church, wherever we're at, we're going to be part of a church. That's some of that discipline. You're bringing and building into their lives structure, right? So it's an external, padilla, the external things, positive things, right? It's the way they live their lives. Instruction refers to the, the, it's, it, the, the idea of setting something before the mind. So not only externally are you living a certain way, but you're instructing their mind, you're teaching them about the gospel or how a Christian worldview, whatever it might be. Uh, and it's also warning. So there's positive and there's negative. There's external, there's internal. But notice the prepositional phrase, all this is done, it's the discipline and instruction, and the prepositional phrase, of the Lord. In other words, of the, the content of which is of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what we do. Ephesians 6, fathers, mothers, don't do this. Rather, structure their lives, both externally and internally, in the discipline, the encouragement, the positive things, as well as the warnings and admonitions of Jesus Christ. Christ-likeness is the goal. Don't get me wrong. Teach them to hit the baseball. Teach them to throw the, you know, throw football. Teach them all those things. Teach them math and science and all that. But if you fail to teach them about Jesus Christ, about becoming like Christ, then you're not parenting with the right perspective. So do all those other good things, but make sure you also do pursue the goal. I love at our church and our parenting, uh, our child dedication thing. I printed it out this morning. Part of our dedication process, and if you've been to it, it goes like this. We, we talk to the parents, and then we say things, same things to the church. Here it is. The charge. Will you trust, speaking to parents and the church, will you trust God's promises made to you and your children in his word? Will you seek God and seek gospel change in the way you live and parent your children? Will you discipline your children with both grace and truth? Will you teach them God's word and live out the gospel in your home? Will you pray for them and teach them to pray? Will you teach them to worship, to proclaim Christ to others, and to love the church? Will you commit to partner with this church community, seek their help and accountability, and lead your children to do the same? And then the parents say, we will, and then we turn to the congregation. You've been, if you've been there, you've seen it. We say the same thing. Because our jobs together, whatever it might be, is to help us accomplish the goal of parenting our kids biblically, right? And that is to help them be like Jesus Christ. So if the proper perspective is if I'm 
parenting on behalf of another father, and his goal is that my children become like the son, then how do I accomplish this? And that's the last thing we're going to look at this morning. Biblical parenting is about the right gospel. If you've been at this church for any length of time, you've heard me talk about the gospel, not just the, 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 the gospel of Jesus Christ, but gospel just means good news. Gospel's a story that all of us live our lives by. All of us have a gospel, right? All of us have an idea of what is wrong with the world, what's going to make it right, and how do we get that solution to work. That, that's a gospel narrative right there, and there's all kinds of gospels. And you can be a Christian and yet still buy into other gospels, right? I've talked about the CrossFit gospel, right? The, 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 the plague of humanity, the sin of the world is we're all out of shape and we eat unhealthy things. And so to repent of that, we go to our churches, uh, Orange Theory or F45 or LA Fitness or whatever, and then we get discipled by somebody who teaches us how to atone for our sins. And we even have our communion elements, right? We drink our organic protein shakes and gluten-free meal. And so, so we got it all, right? It's, it's a gospel narrative that now that I'm in shape, everything's okay, right? We've got the environmental gospel, Right? That our sin is, we're destroying the environment. Our salvation is sustainability, right? I mean, you, you just name it, we all have gospel narratives. What is the problem in the world? What's the solution? And how do we make that work? And we get around with other people. I've told you about TED Talks, right? Who watches TED Talks? It's okay, I do. That's church, isn't it? That is church. They all get together. They have some really cool music, right? They contribute to charitable causes. They have fellowship. And then someone talks about something that's meaningful, that's, they ripping us off. We've been doing that for 2,000 years, right? But my point is, this is woven into us, folks. We're image bearers. We, we want to live for things beyond us. We want to give our lives to things because the gospel narrative is there. But if we're not careful, careful, like the Galatians, we buy into different gospels. And so you might have a family gospel. That sin there is being less than the ideal family right? I mean, you can change the narrative, but the elements are there. What salvation looks like is being the, the competent mom that has it all together, right? Or the providing dad, or, or we are the happy family in general. And the means of grace can be things like performance, behavior manipulation, right? D uh, demands, or even positively posting those great social media photographs so all the world knows we are the happy family, we're fulfilling the gospel message, See, that can be a family gospel. You can still be a Christian and buy into that gospel, right? Because the New Testament tells us these things are subtle, and they weave their way into our lives. Those of you that I know, none of you here would consciously reject the gospel and what it means. But that's the challenge of other gospels. They're so subtle. And the less you are aware of them, the more power and influence they have. So let me give you a thought experiment to see if you've maybe started buying into the family gospel rather than the, the biblical gospel, if you can do this. The next time, and, and granted I'm talking about younger children because it's more obvious, but you can extrapolate this to, to even adult children. But the next time your child throws a fit in church or at the mall or at a restaurant because, you know, they didn't get their way, and if you can have the presence of mind in that moment, are you more concerned about what other people in the room are thinking about you or your child, or are you more concerned that here is a moment of ministry 
where you can rescue your son or daughter from their selfishness, and only the gospel of grace can do that thing. And if we're being honest, I was talking to a young mom in between services, and she says, that, that, that illustration got me. I said, yeah, because that was me. If we're being honest, sometimes I'm parenting not before the eyes of God. That's the perspective that matters. I'm parenting in front of all your eyes. And the gospel's not driving me, right? And so what we'll do, if that's the gospel we're living under, we'll, do, we'll take all the means of grace, like we'll threaten them. You better stop embarrassing me, right? Or you might bribe them. Oh, Johnny, if you behave, I'll give you gummy worms, right? Or we're going to guilt them. All the things I do and this is what I get, right? But we'll do whatever it takes to get them to behave because that's the problem. And we want, them to, we want people to think we are okay because that's the, that's the solution. That's the Savior. How many of you have bought into the family gospel? Your father is giving you a moment of ministry, and you just see it as a moment where you're losing face, right? Your child is worshiping the creation and not the creator, and their throwing a fit is their way to get you and the world around them to submit to their desires. Now, I'm not saying if you've ruined their sleep schedule and you haven't fed them for four hours that they're not going to have a meltdown, right? I, I get that. There's wisdom here. But so often... I say, I, say, I, tell, I say kids are not innocent, right? Kids are not innocent. They're just inexperienced. And, and they learn really quickly. If I go, ah, mom and dad react and I get what I want. Oh, that works out great, right? Have we given in to the gospel of grace, the family gospel where I have to look good? Or do I see in this moment God has given me an opportunity to rescue my child from themselves? The gospel is necessary. I need, you need as a parent, humility and grace to recognize it. They need rescue and help. You both need repentance and faith. That's the gospel of grace. And only the gospel of grace can provide that. All these other gospels, like the family gospel, won't. Either it will make you more self-righteous because your family performed well, or it will make you self-loathing because your family didn't. But it won't make you more like Jesus Christ. You see, the right gospel teaches us, as we learn, we're sinners in need of grace. And when I got married to my wife, as beautiful and as a godly woman she is, I got married to another sinner in need of grace. And guess what? We then had three more sinners in need of grace, right? And you guys know this, but why is it when it comes to parenting, it all becomes grace is left in the dust, and it becomes about performance and behavior modification, and we're not even interested in changing the heart and reaching the heart. And here's the danger, parents, especially young parents. If your focus is behavior, to the degree you focus on behavior, you have missed the heart. To the degree you've missed the heart, you miss the gospel. Now, I'm not saying behavior is not important. Like, I don't want your kids acting like brats in church any more than you do, right? I'm not saying that. But what I am saying is that you've got to change the heart if you want to change the life. As a matter of fact, I'm saying what Jesus said in Matthew 23, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and plate, that the outside may be clean as well. See, Jesus wasn't saying our behavior doesn't matter. What he was saying is that we live from our hearts, and we need to parent to the heart and not just the behaviors because that's what the gospel's after. And by the way, friends, 
When you, when you parent under a, 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 the gospel, the real gospel and not a family gospel or whatever else, it is so much easier to make mistakes as well, right? Because you will blow it, right? Right, parents? You blow it. You'll blow it a thousand times over. But even those moments, if you have the gospel as your filter, they present wonderful opportunities if pride doesn't grab your heart, to basically seek forgiveness from your children and to say, Dad needs the same grace that I'm telling you guys that you need, I need it too. And Dad's a sinner. And you've just experienced my sin. Would you forgive me? Would you pray for me? Friends, that's not going to show weakness to your children because they know when you're wrong. You just think they don't know that you're wrong. They do know that you're wrong. But you own it. And say, Dad's identity is not in being Dad that's right. Dad's identity is in Jesus Christ, that I'm a sinner that's been saved by grace. Please forgive me for acting differently. You can show your children that you and mom are far from perfect, but that you need grace to be, you need, the, you need to have the Spirit empowering your obedience as well. That's what it is to be parenting under the gospel. And another thing that's very freeing about it is the recognition that whether or not my children actually become Christians at the end of the day, it's not my responsibility. I can't control that, right? I cannot control whether or not my children are Christians. So it's not my responsibility to make them Christians. Now, what is my responsibility and what is your responsibility is to display the gospel, is to live and love them with the gospel, give them opportunities to hear it, to see it, to experience it, to live it. But at the end of the day, it is their responsibility to accept it or reject it. Because salvation's not in the genes. And I am freed from that. What I'm not freed from is my responsibility as a parent. But what I am freed from is whether or not they will accept it and become Christians as well. And I think a lot of times as parents, we forget that. And sometimes we, we wonder why the wheels fall off, and sometimes we actually get it backwards. We're not living for Jesus. We're not embracing his people. We're not obeying his commands, and we wonder why our kids won't do the same, right? But friends, can you imagine if mom and dad are cherishing the gospel, and if, if grace is the song we sing, and Jesus is the man of the house, and all the blessings that flow from that, why would a child want anything different? They won't. And so what Bob told me, though, was pretty simple, though, it was pretty spot on. If mom and dad love the Lord, and we're arrested by the gospel of grace and the beauty of the message, we don't have to worry about it. I want to conclude by just simply saying this. At the end of the day, there's no magic bullet for raising godly kids. Just got started reading 1 Samuel again and came across that chapter where the people of Israel said to Samuel, we don't want your sons. They don't walk in the footsteps you do. Ouch. And then I remember Josiah, a godly young king who brings a revival, and his father and his grandfather, it was Manasseh, were one of the most wicked kings of Israel. And yet, young Josiah becomes a godly champion for the, for, for, for the gospel, for the Lord. Some of you know my story. I grew up in a completely dysfunctional, broken home, and I'm a pastor. I have friends who grew up in godly homes, and they're drunks. There's no guarantees. There's no formula for having godly children guaranteed to you. 
But what, is, what it is about is that we are charged to represent God to our children. We are charged to point them to the gospel of grace and to live and love them with it, entrusting the results to a God who is faithful to His purposes and plans, right? Not, not necessarily our own, but to His, and we can take confidence of that. Whether your child's 5 or 15 or 25, we parent on behalf of God's desires for our children to make them like His Son through the gospel message of grace. And we can trust them to that. Let's pray. Father, we come before you and we thank you that even though all of us have had the perfect Father in you, we have been rebellious and foolish and turned against you. Yet you modeled for us how we are to be to our children, pursuing them with grace, loving them, pointing them to their need of a changed heart. And yet, and even more, you provide that through your Spirit. Lord, we pray that we would be a church that doesn't just think about raising well-behaved children, but gospel-changed children. And we pray this for your glory and our good, in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Christ Community Church of Laguna Hills. For more information and resources from Christ Community, visit us at www.ccclh.org.